Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. John, I think we have a very interesting show lined up for today. As usual, you know, we're going to start off here talking about what college cost here in South Carolina. Yeah, we don't stack up very well versus the nation. That's surprising. You know, I mean, I really thought we were better than what's being portrayed here. Well, when you pay your college football players like some teams in the state do, you got to get you know increases any way you can. Yeah, I mean, South Carolina really the Gamecocks <laughs> really do skew the numbers when they they, uh, they, they pay these coaches <laughs> like yeah. billions of dollars to bring them in. Yeah, they build a lot of stuff too. <laughs> they do, they do. Clemson same way, but uh, yeah, that'll be a very interesting article though. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into those numbers because we don't stack up very well compared to other states. And uh, and then we're also going to talk about why you are a terrible investor. Yes, I've, I've seen these stats before. Yeah, we have. Well, I just want to remind people, this is a very interesting statistics, an article here um, about uh, an ongoing study that's released every year called the uh, QAIB, the Quantitative Inve- Analysis of Investor Behavior. And it just compares how the average investor does compared to the indexes. And the numbers are always kind of staggering. Mm, Yeah, they're uh, very, very poor. They are. So we're going to dig into that, though, and talk about some of the reasons why. Why does the average person fall short of a market rate of return? Um, You know, if you don't know those numbers, it's going to be pretty eye-opening. So you want to stick around for that. By the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and investment advisor. Uh, Dave Ramsey, Smart Investor Pro, with over 23 years' experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis, also a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro. I have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals for over 25 years with planning. And we're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday afternoon. Yeah, go check it out on our website, moneymd.net. We have a link to the podcast and have a whole bunch of videos and some pretty cool, cool tools out there as well that we've developed over time that you can take a look at, do some retirement planning and uh, some tax calculations, so quite a, quite a bit of links out there. And also Facebook, go to check out that. We have a video that we put out there every week, try to give you a prescription of the week. So we're trying to trying to do some education out there, as they That's say. That's right. Very current information as well. And also, we'd love to hear your questions. So you can email us directly at info at moneymd.net, or you can link to us right off of our website, invest, well, moneymd.net. Yep. Goes right to it. So uh, we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, I'd like to uh, you know think that we play a little bit of factor in this fact here. What do you think? Oh yeah, I think pretty, we do. Pretty interesting. So here's the here's the stat: um, about 77 million households are homeowners in the U.S., and about um, about a third of those, Steve, have no mortgage. That's a good. That's a good surprised. statistic. I was surprised how that's good a, that was. Yeah, I was. That was higher than what I would have guessed. I would have thought it would have been in in the teens. But that's because um, of retirees. Though. It is, it is. And, um, you know, we that's one of our goals with our clients is trying to get them debt-free, both consumer credit card and then also mortgage, obviously, as well. Dave Ramsey probably has a big impact on that number as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good number. A third have their house totally paid off, you know, and obviously you're out of debt if you have your house paid off. I'm sure they don't have credit card debt and their home, pay, you know, and no right. house mortgage. Um, those two usually don't go together, but, um, yeah, you want to make sure your house is totally paid off a hundred percent by retirement, 
That is a definite goal. You need to be there. So if you don't have your house totally paid off uh, or you're not on schedule to do that, you need to amortize it over the remaining years you have to retirement and try to pay that monthly payment so that it, it equals zero when you retire. Yeah, that's right. It can be done. It can. You got to make it a, make it a priority. Right. So if you need help with that, give us a call. We can help you figure out what that number should be. Um, but that's a great fact of the week. And that leads us up here to our first topic, and that is South Carolina colleges, uh, our affordability is somewhat challenged. Yeah, this is interesting. This is uh, Bill Taylor, Representative Bill Taylor from uh, Aiken County. He's the chairman of the South Carolina House Higher Education Subcommittee. And he actually wrote a uh, guest columnist uh, in the Aiken Standard recently. And, you know, this goes for, you know, South Carolina, but I'm sure it's applicable in a lot of states that surround us, Georgia, North Carolina. And, you know, this crisis has certainly reached a fever pitch in South Carolina. You know, the citizens of the state um, are in need of help. I mean, so that message um, that the citizens and the state leaders have been hearing at town hall events um, across the state, and they're they're basically, um, you know, the South Carolina Commission on uh, Higher Education is responsible for the balance between students and taxpayer interests. So, um, you know, there's also institutional needs and economic development. So true to its mission, the um, the South Carolina Commission on Higher Education is hosting town halls uh, across South Carolina to hear from okay. students and families about how they're being impacted by the increasingly daunting challenge of paying for college without being you know saddled with crippling amount of debt and so they're actually um, they uh, have one um, had one yesterday on uh, May the seventeenth at the uh, Aiken High School, and um, they're having them all over the state, but I'm sure they're getting some pretty interesting feedback from the families, because I know we just had our kids go through that process, and it is extremely expensive. It is. Thank goodness my kids are through college now, um, because it, it just seems to go up by double digits almost every year, and it just seems unsustainable. And But uh, some of these statistics, though, that he throws out really – do kind of concern you. Um, so here are some of the facts to consider and why parents are so concerned here in South Carolina. You know, as a percentage of household income, South Carolinians pay more than any other state for tuition. Hmm. It's hard to believe. I guess our income, the income in South Carolina is pretty low. Pretty low. Right. So that, that I'm sure plays a part of that. Um, but also South Carolina is first in the Southeast in cost of attendance. And they're fifth in the nation. Hmm. So that was a little surprising to me. I didn't think we were, for the nation to be fifth, is we were anywhere close to that. I thought north northeastern states. and I tell you, you know, a lot of folks from the north come down to state schools. I know South true. Carolina has a lot of folks from the northeast. True, true. And they actually point out later in this article that's, that's part of the problem because they have yeah. these, they have a lot of competition from out-of-state students that are coming in and kind of taking the slots. Well, and so South Carolina is eighth in the nation in terms of student debt, which again is surprising. Um, I just thought Northeast, you know, Northwestern schools were more expensive, but uh, yeah, those are some alarming statistics. Yeah. And the tuition prices in South Carolina at a four-year public college and university, they average about 12,000 per year. 
but that's only the tip of the iceberg. Fees can run up an additional $1,500 um, per semester for certain majors. And um, sometimes, you know, it's going to be 15000 per year when you start looking at those additional fees. I've, I've seen them. You had the tuition, yeah. which looks reasonable, but then you have all these other fees that certainly add up. And, Steve, that doesn't include the room, um, the book costs, meals. I mean, the total tab, when you look at the true out-of-pocket for families, it can be close to $30,000 a year. That was my experience. You know, last year I paid for the girls, um, that it was, it was even after the life scholarship, it was in that range of about, you know, high twenties to $30,000 per year. So that's a lot. Yeah, that's right. And this is not the only reason to be concerned about the state's higher education system. The the current financial model for funding, um, post-secondary institutions, um, will be sustainable as long as a supply of students, you know, tuition dollars is enough to meet the budget obligations of the institutions. And we're going to dive into that. That, that could be a problem. Yeah, it definitely can. You know, unfortunately, you know, students' enrollments at uh, South Carolina public four-year colleges and universities has been flattening out since about 2011. Um, and that signals trouble for many of the state schools that the funding model is not reformed. You know, he points out here, I mean, some of this is a result of a demographic shifts. You know, there are fewer people who were born 20 years ago. And but then some of it is related to increase in cost, too. You know, and at the same time, um, many of the on campus uh, institutional expenditures have continued to steadily increase. You know, anyone who's ever balanced a checkbook knows that you know you can't stay in business long if the money going out grows faster than the revenue coming in. And that's why, according to this article, Moody's, the credit rating agency recently downgraded the entire higher education hmm. sector last December in South Carolina. Interesting. I didn't hear, I didn't, hadn't heard, didn't I hadn't, know that. Hadn't heard of that either. And while South Carolina is not unique in needing to address these higher education challenges, it's still a reality that um, is going to have to be addressed. And to begin that process, um, the CHE, the uh, Commission of Higher Education, they recently passed a student bill of rights, which is based on feedback from families and students um, that have attended the uh, recent town halls. And their goal is to start a discussion on how to increase affordability, also improve access and quality, as well as bring you know, sustainability to the system. And so this student bill of rights, it proposes specific goals that will need to be tailored according to each mission of the institution because, you know, there's 33 institutions in the state. I didn't realize there were right. that many. I mean, you hear about the South Carolina and the, the, the um, Clemsons and so forth, but uh, 33, that's quite a bit. Quite that a, is a lot. Quite a few number, um, fair number there. And the Student Bill of Rights, it includes some of the following proposals. So we're going to kind of go through and enlist these. It allows Palmetto Fellows and Life Lottery Tuition Scholarship recipients to be granted automatic acceptance to any public institution of higher learning in South Carolina. That would be nice. That's I'm sure that'll be some of the upper tier, mm-hmm. you know, colleges will resist that. Yeah, I'm sure they will, but that that would open up the doors as well. And another one here is placing qualified in-state students first in line in the admission process and out-of-state growth should not ne- uh, necessitate institutional expansion in capital spending. So out-of-state enrollment should be assessed, managed and potentially capped. Um, to allow better access to South Carolina schools for South Carolina students. Yeah, I didn't realize that out-of-state, you know, competition, if you will, was kind of crowding out in-state, and that's what they're implying Mm -hmm. there by that that item. So that's interesting. 
Yeah, they also point out um, tuition breaks for out-of-state students should be reviewed and potentially capped as well. Again, kind of limiting the out-of-state competition. And then students should be able to freely transfer qualified courses between institutions. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it seems like a no-brainer. It does, you know, um, particularly for the non-really specific courses. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can understand. History, English. Yeah, the basic courses. You know, the cost of attendance should be capped, frozen, or decreased. Mm, I'm sure that wasn't received very well by the institutions. I bet it wasn't. Decreased, really? Decreased, yeah. And then institutions should increase transparency and consistency in disclosing fees. Now, we're all for that. Mm. Price price transparency should be there. You shouldn't have a big surprise. There's an extra $1,000 fee because your son is taking, you know, some kind of accounting course or something, which I ran into that, you know, time and again with my kids. and, And that is not a nice feeling to see extra fees packed on there. At the last second. And then the Commission on Higher Education should collect, assess, and monitor institutional budgets um, as required by law and enrollment. And uh, sounds like that's already a requirement, so sure. Yeah, and the final one here, Steve, is South Carolina students have the right to expect that their success and well-being would be at the heart of every decision made at every level within the state's higher education system. That's a no-brainer. Um, but I, I, you know, Steve, I think bottom line is, is, you know, college costs are higher than what they should be. I mean, I do think they should be, they are be lowered, um, out of state students, um, capped, I think is a reasonable idea. Um, not everybody should be going to college. Um, not everybody. There are no. skill sets <laughs> that you can get out there, whether it's, um, graphic design to welding that you can make a great living and, and not come out of school with four years or five years for most people you know, having thirty or $40,000 of debt, it's a, it's not a good trade-off um, for everybody. It's not. I think, you know, there's a little bit too much collusion going on between the universities in terms of, of setting prices and, you know, book prices and not allowing um, kind of competition from online institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it seems to me that online education should have lowered prices by now. And I think there's some, you know, it, it, there is somehow there's some collusion going on you know there's a reason they kind of have the name the college cartels Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. i mean they're they're controlling prices somehow and keeping keeping online availability from bringing prices down i mean heck your students go and now half their classes are online yeah they are and you pay the same amount per per credit hour yeah i mean what's what's wrong with that picture you sure do there's something wrong with that so anyway interesting topic though um and that leads us up here to our uh, question of the week. Yeah, this question came from a client, Steve, and it was, um, we're talking about annuities. Uh, she has an annuity from many, many years ago that uh, she brought to our relationship here at Richard Young Associates. But she got a letter about um, annuitization, so the, the contract had come to an end. So she had a couple of different options, and she didn't know what uh, annuitization meant. And basically, um, when you have an annuity and you you have you go to the process of annuitizing it, you're basically turning on an income stream, right? Based on whatever qualifications or whatever um, metrics that you have. So some sometimes it's for life, sometimes it's for ten years, and so forth. But you're basically giving up control of that asset when you annuitize it. That's right. And um, so you have to be careful that that you know that may be the right decision. In her case, it was not right now. So we did some uh, some different things with it. But she understood after we talked that annuitization just basically meant turning on income um, to her. Yeah, turning it into an actual guaranteed yes income stream. And 
you know, mo- I've seen statistics before that most most uh, policyholders do not ever annuitize. Only about four percent actually annuitize their contracts. Wow, that's low. So it's a very low. Statistic. I knew it was low, but that's very low. Right, it's very low, and the reason, of course, is you lose flexibility, as you mentioned. That mentioned, you know, you lose control of the balance, and you're basically turned over your balance to them for this guaranteed stream of income. And then there's not a lot of survivor benefits mm-hmm. associated with that stream of income. So, yeah, in general, that's that's not something most people want to do. That is the historic reason, though, for buying an annuity. Yeah, it is. And, guaranteed uh, income. So what they were that's what they're made for. So uh, you have to question now, you know, why you're buying an annuity if you don't want the guaranteed income. So good question of the week. And that leads up to our next topic here, and that is why you are terrible at investing. I, I thought maybe you would take off the why and just say you are terrible at investing. <laughs> right. Well, it's another <laughs> way of saying it because uh, you know we, we just skipped right over that fact and just we're now we're getting to the question of why. Yes. John. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is a, based out of an article out of Investment News, um, Mabane Faber. And, uh, you know, there is a study that's released each year, John, called the uh, Quantitative Analysis of Investor Behavior, QAIB is mm-hmm. what we call it for short. And people in this business are very familiar with it. It's released by Dalbar Associates. And it basically confirms that the average investor is terrible, according to the latest study release. Um, and you know, I know if you're out there listening, you think you're better than average, but probably not according to this recurring study, according to the 2017 report over the last 20 years, the average stock investor in mutual funds made about 4.8% while the S and P 500 returned 7.7% through 2016. So that means that the average Joe absolutely stinks at investing, (laughs) You know, they were coming up 3% short, basically, um, which is a huge percentage because it wasn't it wasn't a great 20 year period um, to look back on. So but don't feel too bad, though. I mean, most professionals also stink at investing. Um, According to the New York Times article here recently, 99.4% of fund managers showed no evidence of stock picking skill and. Uh, and the the 0.6% of managers who did outperform the index were statistically indistinguishable from zero. Hmm. So it was within the margin of error, yeah, what they're right. saying. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, of course, I mean, like I said, the last 20 years have been kind of a weak period for stocks compared to their long-term history. and But that's one more reason why you can't afford to fall short when the market does deliver good results. But yet most investors, they do fall far short over time. So the question is, is, is why do investors fall uh, short of the return? And the answer really lies in the lack of patience and, and also discipline. Most investors are moving in and out of the market far too often and at the wrong times, thinking that they can time the market. Another problem is trying to select individual stocks, which is why the worst investing counsel you'll likely ever receive is that you should try to pick good stocks and sell bad ones. You know, you'll get this advice in one form or another from a lot of different sources. Um, Sometimes advisors tell you to do that, friends, colleagues, Wall Street. You watch, you know, all the investment uh, media. They'll tell you to uh, to buy and sell, buy low and sell high. And, you know, you should ignore that. It it sounds easy to do, but, I mean, it can't be done. The results show that. That's right. I mean, it sounds exciting. You know, it's the allure of, of gambling and hitting the big win out there, but it's not uh, it's not what it's cracked up to be. 
Yeah, since the dawn of investment time, though, the few great stock pickers and market timers have been revered, and even most novices can proudly kind of recite their that they've produced, you know, mountainous returns, you know, over uh, by some some stock pick that they made. You know, I remember back in '94, I bought Microsoft, hmm. and man, it did fantastic, you know. But at the same time, I bought a bunch of other stocks that I can't remember. I remember they didn't do so well. <laughs> they averaged out. <laughs> they averaged out probably less than the market. Exactly. Uh, you know, unfortunately, what is smart or lucky on occasion often proves dumb over time. And in the end, most stock pickers do worse than if they had just never tried to pick stocks at all and just bought a good index fund. Despite snagging the occasional tin bagger, you know, uh, for example, even professional mutual fund stock pickers still have depressingly poor odds of beating the market once their losers and the costs are taken into account. So consider some of the facts from a recent study here about individual stock returns. 64% of stocks underperformed the index for 25 years, that, according to this study, going back to 2007. Um, so almost two-thirds underperformed the market. 39% of stocks lost money over 29 years. Hmm. I mean, that's almost 40%. That's, that's horrible. That's a big number. And then 19% lost 75% of their value over that 25-year period. Wow. So you got like a 1 in 5% chance of picking one that, that loses 25% over five, over or loses 75% over 25 years. So only t- about a fourth of the stocks were responsible for all of the positive gains of the market in this 25-year period. I mean, that's just astonishing. That is. I mean, that means if you don't get your share of the apples out there and the few that that really have the amazing returns, then that means that you're you're hosed. You know, you're not going to get anywhere close to a market rate of return. So, you know, these kind of statistics make stock picking a very dangerous game. If you pursue a stock picking strategy you're almost certain to lag the market over the long term. Yeah, the problem for investors is that even though stock picking usually hurts returns, uh, a lot of times they don't know that, but it's extremely interesting and also fun. I mean, people view it as a hobby for for some folks out there. If you ever, um, if you were ever to wean yourself of this bad habit, the first step is to understand why it's so rarely successful. And the short answer is that the overall market provides most of the investment returns, not particular stock picks. So most stock pickers get credit for gains that came merely from being invested in stocks or the market as a whole. And, and second, competition among, among stock pickers is so intense that it's extraordinarily difficult for any one competitor to get a consistent edge. That's, that's so true. That's exactly right. And then another one here, John, though, the third reason is, although plenty of stocks have beaten the market before cost, all thing else, all, everything else being equal, um, you have about even odds of doing that. Um, but it's much harder to do so after cost, even if you pick stocks well enough to boost your pre-tax or pre-cost return by a couple points. The expenses you rack up along the way from research, trading, um, the spreads, the taxes, it almost always will consume any excess gain. So cost is a really big deal when it comes to stock picking. So most stock pickers believe that they are among the tiny minority of, of investors that can beat the market after cost. And for inspiration and encouragement, they kind of point to the legends of 
of Wall Street like Warren Buffett and Benjamin Graham, if you really know your history. But, um, you know, what such investors often don't know is that even Buffett has said that the best strategy for most investors is to buy a low-cost index fund. And the great Benjamin Graham um, eventually changed his mind about the wisdom of traditional stock picking. And Graham, as you you may have read or heard back um, in the day, he was one of the greatest stock pickers of all times. He was a man back in the 30s and 40s who wrote two classics on investing, intelligent investing, and his security analysis techniques are still taught in most investment classes today. But that's not still the case of what he what he said. Yeah, back in the the seventies, shortly before his death, Graham told the uh, Journal of Finance the following. He says, "I'm no longer an advocate of elaborate techniques of security analysis in order to find superior value opportunities." So he was changing his tune. He said this was a rewarding activity, say forty years ago. Um, you know when his book uh, was first published, but the situation has changed. Now this is back in the mid seventies. I doubt whether such extensive efforts will generate sufficiently superior selections to justify the cost. And what did Graham mean when he said the situation has changed? Well, he concluded after you know almost four decades ago that the stock picking practices that had defined you know the investing back in the 30s and 40s were no longer worthwhile and valid because there are so many people involved in it and the, the, the information that is known is in the, is reflected in the stock price. Yeah. And that's before the invention of the internet. Yes. <laughs> I mean, gee, well before with internet trading today, didn't, gee, Gore, was, didn't Gore develop that? I think he did. Yeah. yeah that's what Gore, I heard. I was yeah, reading something Right. Like so he really innovated the whole system, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. See, so there are several reasons why these techniques don't work anymore. I mean, first, you know, in the eighties, since in the decades, eight decades since Graham wrote Security Analysis, the stock market has gone from being kind of a playground for amateurs to being a battlefield that's dominated by full-time professionals. You know, one result, um, one result is that the pricing errors that once might have gone unnoticed for months back in Graham's day, they're now discovered and they're exploited almost instantaneously. So, you know, very quick changes going on in the marketplace to new information. Second, though, the amount of information that's available about the most obscure stock today dwarfs what was available about even the bellwethers a half century ago, making it harder to dig up information that other investors don't already know. You know, the moment the information's released, moreover, it's dissected, it's discussed, it's debated by thousands of analysts until most reasonable conclusions that can ever be drawn from it already have been and today's technology allows even part-time investors to screen tens of thousands of stocks in dozens of markets and in in, in uh, the time it would take in a gram era analyst to compute the net current assets of a single company yeah it's definitely changed it has yeah and the third reason stock picking doesn't work like it did back in Graham's day is that inside information that used to be quite valuable is um, now illegal that's right. Probably don't want to do that. <laughs> no insider trading. That's right. And finally, the establishment of research centers such as um, the Center for Research and Security Prices, they've allowed analysts to study markets and investing in ways that, you know, the young Benjamin Graham could have only dreamed of. And in doing so, uh, to assemble a body of knowledge that, that, you know, makes much of the investment wisdom of the early 20th century seem really primitive and, and unscientific. Um 
in the process. So there's just so much information. It's so much quicker. It's impossible to pick stocks. It just exactly. is. So the moral of the story here is, you know, for the average investor, if you want to get a decent return, you need to follow a proven approach of diversification in the many asset classes and rebalance to that allocation. You know, this strategy of investing in asset classes has been proven over decades. Um, it's been proven through modern portfolio theory, um, so you need to weight asset classes that have given higher returns over time. You need to stick to a well-diversified allocation, though, in rebalance to that. No, don't try to pick stocks or time the market. That's what all the research here has proven. Okay, and that leads us up here to our final thing, and that is the prescription of the week. Yeah, and I think we probably use this about once a week, Steve, but it's so important, um, for, for, particularly for people that um, – you know, young folks coming out. Um, you know, I've been working with Danielle. She has her first job now. We've talked about setting up these kind of uh, budget accounts and items, but they're non-routine expenses. Um, you know, Christmas is a great example. They used to have the Christmas Club, where out of every paycheck, you would take twenty-five bucks, and then you would have you know three hundred dollars to go buy Christmas gifts. Right. Same concept with um, tires, car repairs, birthday presents, vacation. You really should have a separate account that you're funding every single month with 200, 300, 500, whatever the number is. And that account then will be used to pay for these expenses. So you're budgeting monthly and then you're able to pull them out of a separate account. Yeah. Those non-routine expenses you're referring to there, um, you know, the insurance and taxes and things that come up maybe once a year or once every six months, those things make up about 10 to 20% of the average budget. That's a big number. That's a big number. So if you're forgetting to, to if you're not allocating for that and you're not planning that money ahead of time, your budget's going to fail for sure. I mean, you're going to come up 10 or 20% short and that doesn't even count, you know, for, for money you can't, you don't track, you know, the cash you spend and the miscellaneous things you buy. So uh, yeah, you need to budget those in and it needs to be broken down monthly and you need to set that money aside, just like you said. So that's a great prescription of the week. All right. Well, this has been this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us out on our website, moneymd.net, and email us your questions at info at moneymd.net, or give us a call, Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening, and have a great rest of the week. Have a good one. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVestor Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. 